It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Coronavirus Update. If you're in lockdown, just like me, don't worry. I've put together some of the best bits from my talk radio breakfast show into this daily podcast, so you won't miss any of the day's biggest coronavirus updates. Enjoy and stay safe. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Should we talk about the small matter of a national pandemic, the uh, international pandemic that's actually costing lives as opposed to statues put up hundreds of years ago or old TV shows? Yes, well, let's talk about that and many other subjects with our next guest, the Health Minister, Edward Argar, who joins us now. Good morning to you, Minister. Morning, Julia. Good morning. Well, I say, I say morning, not good morning, quite specifically, because a 20% fall <laughs> in GDP in April, first full month of lockdown. Your reaction to that? Well, like you, I, will have, I saw those figures a few minutes ago when they were published, 204 uh, percent reduction. It's something, uh, a reduction in GDP is not something unexpected given the impact of lockdown and tackling the health emergency on the economy. But it's clearly a very, very significant um, fall and it's clearly something that, uh, that as a country we need to address. We need to address it by safely reopening the economy step by step to get the country working again. Um, a lot of that is going to come down to the two-metre rule. Ongoing battles on the front yeah. page of many papers again and again. So many businesses, particularly the hospitality industry, aviation industry, tourism and the like, saying you've got to relax this two-metre rule. The World Health Organization says one metre is enough. Not You don't need two metres. Many, <clears throat> many other countries, the Western countries, have only got one metre or just a bit more. When is the, com- the, the government going to actually make that decision? SAGE, they keep batting it back to SAGE. SAGE has said it's a political decision. It's up to the Prime Minister to make the decision to allow these countries companies effectively to reopen. When is that going to be done? Well, that's right. And I listened to Andre just now on your show, as I I always enjoy doing. He's right. We need to get the country back to work. But we do need to do it in a safe way, both for those working in those businesses and to avoid the risk of a second wave, but also for people to have confidence to go out and shop and participate in the economy again. You're right that there are mixed mixed views around the world, indeed, on the two metre rule. You've got countries like Canada and Spain, which have two metres, the same as us. You've got countries like America, I think, with 1.8 metres. You've got others at 1.5 and uh, others at one. The science on this and the scientific consensus on this is mixed. There is a scientific debate going on. The advice we have at the moment from our scientists in SAGE is that two metres significantly reduces the risk of transmission compared to, say, one metre. But you're right, it is ultimately going to be, on the basis of the scientific advice, a ministerial decision. Advisors advise, ministers decide. And it's something that is kept under constant review because there is, as has been said um, 
by many, on both on your show and on others, there is always a balance to be struck between getting the economy moving again and getting the country moving, but also continuing to protect public health and avoid the risk of that second wave, which would be hugely economically damaging. Let's also talk about uh, the, the, what is needed to get everyone back out, not just to school, but to work mm. and get normal, I presumed. And this is the test and trace system. We were promised a world-beating app. No sign of that anyway now. No, not even a date for when we're going to get that uh, to go. Your, your boss, uh, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, was with Dido Harding at the press conference at Downing Street last night, revealed that 31,000 new contacts have been traced. But a third of those who tested positive don't give their contacts, which is one of the reasons why you're supposed to have the app for people who don't do that or people don't even know who they you know, bumped into in a shop or all the like. Um, is this test and trace system going to be enough to get us back working? Because on the face of it, it doesn't look like it's going to be uh, enough to actually keep us safe. Well, I think it is. And I think it's got off to a very, very good start. These are figures for the first week, week into something that's been set up essentially from scratch. And you'll remember, I think it was about 10 days ago when I was last on your show. And quite rightly, you pushed me saying, well, will we get the stats? Will you publish them and will you put them out there? Which we've done. We wanted to make sure they were right. So we've now put those stats out there. So quite rightly, you can question people like me about them. 67% um, response of those who tested positive, giving their contacts, 5,407 people. That is a very, very significant number for the first week of operation. But you're right, um, about a third didn't respond. Now, there are a range of reasons for that. Some of them, and we all know what we felt like, for example, if we've got very bad flu. This is a disease that's much worse than that. Um, and therefore, you don't sometimes feel like responding to phone calls or text messages. So it's possible that some people didn't respond because they were, understandably, feeling under the weather. There are a range of other factors as well. But we're working very hard to get that number up. And of those that did respond and gave contact, um, 85% of those contacts given, 26,985 people, so just shy of 27,000, agreed to follow the, uh, to follow the instruction to self-isolate okay. for two weeks. So we've got a really high level of compliance um, on the basis of this. First week data, I caveat it with that, for those who respond um, with their contact details and, and who we've been So you're, you're hopeful it will be start. working? Okay. Um, no, you, I know you. We, we have a very short time. I just want to get one more question yeah. in. Uh, and the National Audit Office report today has uh, shown that um, two things. One is that PPE, the government, well, the, the officials in charge of stockpiling PPE, failed to stockpile PPE even in February when we knew about the pandemic spreading. And also that 25,000 elderly hospital patients were discharged to care homes without being tested for coronavirus at the height of the pandemic. Both of those things are unforgivable, aren't they? Well, let me address each in turn, um, if I may. First of all, on the PPE, I think the NEO report, and again, it was it only came out overnight, so I've only seen the headlines of that report and read them. Um, but on the PPE, one of the things they highlighted was about the report late last year from NERVTAG, one of the government's advisory groups, suggesting that uh, stockpiling of PPE should encompass a number of other items. That was accepted and taken on board, and the procurement for that was set in train to commence early in 2020. Obviously, that was overtaken by the pandemic and the demands of the pandemic and indeed global demand on PPE. But that was a late 2019 recommendation, which we accepted and which we acted to implement, obviously, with the pandemic then overtaking that. But we acted swiftly to deal with that. In terms of care homes, quite rightly, 
you uh, most of the times when we've been uh, on your show together, you've highlighted this because it is hugely important. Um, every single death in this pandemic, but every single death in care homes is a tragedy. Um, what we've seen, uh, I think Chris Hobson, the chief executive of NHS providers, the organisation that represents NHS Trust say, is that he is not aware of any systematic discharge um, of people from hospitals into care homes known to have or suspected of having uh, COVID-19, that the discharges in February to April from hospitals to care homes were actually 40% lower. No, they, no, they were only and lower because elderly patients hadn't been put into hospital in the first place. They were just busy dying in care homes without getting hospital treatment first. You know that's why. Hang on, and, and one final point, Julia, on that, which I was just going to say, um, and that also every discharge from hospital was a clinical decision as to what was best okay. for that patient and what right. was safe. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Now, let's talk, though, about the small matter of a national pandemic and whether or not we are actually doing what we need to do to come out of the lockdown. Let's talk to Tom Whipple. He's science editor at The Times and joins us now. Good morning, Tom. 
Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Um, very well. Let's get to the science, not the culture wars, the stuff that uh, really does uh, matter to people's lives because it's about keeping people alive. Um, we've uh, we've got these ongoing battles about the two meter rule. We've got um, issues about whether or not masks do or don't slow the spread of the virus by a serious amount. Ongoing reports now about uh, a PPE and what went wrong early on. Should we have locked down earlier, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And now the test and trace system. We've got the first figures: thirty-one thousand new contacts traced. That Matt Hancock, the health secretary, said yesterday, and Dido Harding, who's uh, running it. But only uh, well a third of people who were testing positive for the virus, um, who, who obviously you know they've gone to the bother of getting the test to find out, they've refused to give their contacts. But those who have uh, given agreed to give their contacts, when those contacts were contacted, lots of use of the word contact, 85% did agree to self-isolate for 14 days. Are we counting that, and is the government counting that as a success? I mean, the government is, and I think it's relatively successful. This was never, this was always one of those things. I mean, we said we wanted a world-beating system. The truth is it's one of those things where, where perfect should never be the enemy of good. It's about just chipping away at the pandemic, chipping away at the virus, uh, and, and trying to do what we can. And I think for a first week, that's not too bad. One of the big caveats that hasn't been talked about enough, I think, is these are only people who are testing positive. We know that there's quite a large number of people, far more than test positive, that are positive, but are just sort of bumping along in the community and, and sort of are unnoted. Um, so this is, this is part of the solution, and it was only ever part of the solution. And I think that's not too bad for a first week. The problem is that in the first week when we're trying to make sure of it in the first few weeks we're trying to make sure it works trying to get it get it up and running we're also trying to open the economy at the same time yes. and i think possibly we're moving too far isn't the point that of course that it wasn't supposed to be the first week they should have been up and running a, a whole month ago with the app and and then we would they've been going through these teething issues much earlier and then we'd all be a lot more confident people sending their kids to school leaving lockdown it's interesting you, you say we should be going a lot slower there are lots of people who seem to have that view but we spoke to a, a, an emeritus professor of microbiology professor hugh pennington earlier in the show and, and he, along with actually other virologists we've spoken to, said, look, actually, you know, we should have been coming out, you know, the, uh, much sooner. And actually, the, 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 the way we've been coming out so far has been very, very, very slow indeed. And we're not seeing a rise in the number of uh, infections. And actually, we should perhaps be coming out rather quicker. Uh, he's, I mean, he, he's on something of a limb. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of his views, and I'm also aware of what, what other virologists I've spoken to have said. Um, I would say that, yes, we are coming out slowly. Um, the problem is that the, the, the infection is very well suppressed, um, but it's not... It's not crushed. We, we seem to be in a situation where it's just bumping along at roughly the same level, where it's ready to return. And uh, it, it feels to me and the people I've spoken to that if we left it just a couple of weeks, this isn't about sort of, uh, you know, lockdown sceptics versus lockdown absolutists. Yes. But the purpose of the lockdown was to suppress it to a level where we could cope with it. And at the moment, we've got this, this magic R number that everyone talks about, which is, you know, you can debate it's relevant, but basically what it means is we are just about maintaining the level of the pandemic at this very low level. What we want to do is really, really, really reduce it. And I suspect another couple of weeks we could do that, but we keep on introducing these slight easings at a level that just keeps it going. It's yeah. like we're, we're just keeping it. But, but we can cope with it. 
the, the reasons for the lockdown were, you know, were as you say, you know, saving, protecting the NHS and, and, and saving lives and like. But we did save lives by us all locking down, and and the NHS was protected. We've never even needed to use all that excess capacity in those Nightingale hospitals. No one has died because they couldn't get treatment for coronavirus. I mean, the people may have died because they didn't get treatment or couldn't get treatment for other things. But again, that is going to be the long-term issue in this country. But but we have been able to cope. We haven't seen our NHS overwhelmed. So, well, I mean, getting this goes back to I mean, stuff that's been in the news this week. Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College he did all these uh, uh, these uh, sort of mathematical models about what would happen. That two hundred fifty thousand deaths that was predicted if we didn't go to lockdown. And he said that if we locked down a week earlier, and that seems to be the general view now, everyone. Oh, we should have locked down a week earlier. And 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 despite the fact that the Sage Committee unanimously unanimously agreed that we should not lock down on the thirteenth of March, and that was ten days uh, before we did see the announcement of the lockdown. And the government, there's no doubt at all, the government was following what their advisors, medical and scientific advisors, were saying. It's as simple as that. There's no way we can question that. Um, we can question the advice, but not what the government did based on that advice. And if they'd said we're going to lock down, even though the medical advice is is not to, they would have been criticised for that as well. But the point is that perhaps they didn't have the best medical and scientific research and evidence at the time to be giving that advice. And again, that may well come down to the failures of test and trace, mayn't it? Well, I think, yeah, I think we, we've, we've always been operating in a large level of uncertainty. And, and you're right, there's a danger that there's this narrative where we deify, in inverted commas, capital letters, the science, um, and imply that these sort of, the, the, the politicians, nefarious politicians weren't, weren't listening, weren't following, when in fact there was a massive amount of, uh, of uncertainty. Um, and, you know, you'll still hear credible scientists debating whether or not a lockdown is the right approach. But the fact is we did it. And if we'd done it earlier, we'd probably be out of it now um, and we'd have probably saved lives, at least in this first wave. Um, And equally, given we have done it, yes, one of the targets of it was to protect the NHS, to save lives. um, But we don't want to do it and then have to do it again right away. So what, what needs to happen is that it gets to a level where the the pandemic is dealable with by things like contact tracing. Um, But if we keep the infections pumping along, whether we've got this reservoir of a few tens of thousands of people continually infected, and then we let everyone go to Primark and we let everyone go back to school, then we're just going to find continually we're having this economic, these economic problems. And obviously we know, we can see the dilemma. I mean, it's anyone who pretends any of this is easy just isn't looking at the trade-offs, isn't looking at the massive fall in GDP. Um, but the issue is, for the sake of maybe slightly improving next month's GDP figures, which are still going to be awful, we lift ever so slightly. But then we just spend the whole summer unable to properly reopen or, or do the measures that other countries are doing because we still have this background infection. It's like having a, it's like having an infection, you know, taking antibiotics for an infection and then stopping them and allowing the infection to fester and so when we just need to heal it. Online on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. School very hard to go to work if your kids aren't in school and we're looking at some schools uh, not returning even in the autumn and it's been a very slow return for an awful lot of uh, children to primary school in reception years one and year six even in the last couple of weeks. Well let's talk to the head teacher of the Michaela Community Free School Catherine Burbel Singh often uh, called a, a super head. She's author of The Power of Culture a book about the culture of schools and she joins us now. Good morning to you Catherine. Morning. Um, I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, 
secondary schools are not supposed to be back other than unless they're, they're helping with the disadvantaged pupils and key workers. But the big push had been for primary schools to come back just three years and then the rest of the primary school years would be back uh, by the uh, end of this month. We'd have at least a month of schooling for them before the July holidays. Autumn, well, all the schools will be back. Now that's looking in doubt. Why is it so hard to get children back in the classroom? Yes, well, in fact, secondaries are back on Monday and we are back on Monday. And um, it takes a lot of time and planning uh, to make things safe for the children. Uh, and we have spent the last couple of weeks doing that. And um, we're excited about being back. But it is hard. The, the second thing is that in order for schools to be safe, you could only have a small number of children in. So we have a quarter of the children in at any one time for years 10 and 12. Um, it means from a child's point of view, they're only coming in really once, possibly twice, depending on the year group, um, per week. Uh, and that's a bit odd because it's not like a normal school experience for them. And then in addition to that, the school that you have, the stuff you've got going on in school, you've got to have online learning happening as well. So it is a logistical nightmare for any senior team, really, to try and organise. Why is it, though, that some schools seem to be able to manage it and some don't? We're told, oh, well, the private schools can do it because they've got a load of money and a lot of the state schools can't. But some state schools are doing a brilliant job of online learning and some aren't doing any online learning at all. They're just handing out a worksheet uh, once a week to, you know, via the teachers, uh, so via the parents. Why, why are some schools able to do it and some schools not? Yeah, well, I mean, there are different schools, just like, you know, there are, in any profession, <laughs> there are good Is it competence? And, well, I suppose. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, I presume that some schools have more difficult time. I have a very young staff, so on technology, they are like ducks to water, and they can go with it really quickly. Um, we also have a leadership team that's complete, and we know, when I say complete, we, 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 we've got people in all the positions that need to be there. Some schools are lacking staff. Some schools, I don't know, for instance, an entire science department could be made up of supply teachers in some schools. Uh, they, they, they might be struggling in terms of staffing and, and even at, at the senior level. So you might have uh, interim deputies, interim head teachers, you know. So depending on how secure and solid the school was to begin with, uh, it, it, you, you'll probably see that reflected in, in the kind of online learning that's been provided. Having said that, I know some people think, well, there has to be Zoom lessons, otherwise the school isn't doing a good job. Well, we, for instance, have chosen to do Zoom lessons with the sixth formers, but we do video lessons with the lower school. There, you, you asked about the difference between private and state. I mean, the thing is, is that the private schools, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, you're going to have um, a, a family at home who is uh, extremely uh, engaged with education. They're so engaged with it, frankly, that they're paying for their education. Um, uh, in the state sector, depending on your intake, certainly we in the inner city have a number of challenging families who perhaps don't uh, believe in education and, and don't, don't uh, you know, just, just aren't supportive of the idea. And then others who perhaps have so lots of children uh, aren't able to, to get a handle on their children at home in the way that perhaps uh, elsewhere would happen. And so... Um, they then 
the, the school might spend a lot of time trying to chase the children to get the work done. I mean, we managed to get 90% of the work done, which is great. And um, we're giving a lot of support, for instance, to our year 11s who will be starting with us in the sixth form uh, in September uh, and in helping them. Because, I mean, the children in the year 11 who have just been left without GCSE exams to prepare for, I do worry about them in trying to start A-levels and so on in September. But, um, uh you know, that's us. We are a very tight, you know. Well, you, you, you have you operate a very, a very different kind of school. I mean, again, people who don't know, you know, you came to everyone's uh, attention. You basically were basically forced out of a state school because you spoke out about uh, a lot of the culture that was holding young people back, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds. You started mm. your own free school, very, very mm. successful school. A lot of your pupils, free school meals, very disadvantaged uh, children. Mm. And you are getting them the, you know, the A grades and the nine grades that they are needing to succeed. Do you think the answer, though, is, I mean, Robert Halfen, um, I think he's an all-round good, good egg, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Tory MP who is uh, the chair of the Education Select Committee, he said, look, we need desperately to get disadvantaged kids back into school. We need to perhaps have summer schools led by retired teachers, Ofsted inspectors and the like. Would summer schools make up for the lack of education that many disadvantaged pupils in particular right now are getting right, uh, are, are failing to get right now? No, I don't think so. Why and, not? Uh, it's a nice idea because the children who haven't done any work over lockdown are not going to come into summer school. They're just not going to turn up. Um, so it's a lovely idea, but uh, people will be in there, and especially if you have people who aren't their teachers. Well, I mean, it's just silly. He, Robert Halfhand's a lovely man, and he has a nice idea, and he's not the only one saying it. Even Michael Wilshaw was saying it. But I think if Michael Wilshaw thought back to his school days, he'd remember, oh, wait a minute, the kids who don't do any work are not the kids who come in for extracurricular learning. Um, so, you know, the, the, the real thing that we need to do is get them back into school in the usual way. Um, and do you think we should do that? Do we think? Do you think we should actually relax some of those rules about social distancing, two meters down to one meter, and the like, and just get the kids back in? I don't know. I mean, look, I'm not a virologist, so it's hard for me to say. Um, I do wish we could go back, but I mean, I I understand people's worry about safety and so on. Um, I'm just hoping and praying that uh, all of this works over the next few weeks, so that come September we really can get them back. And then what's key is what we do at that point. Yeah. Once everybody's back in. Are we teaching them from the front of the class? Are the teachers leading the learning? Do we have excellent discipline, which means that the children are able to learn loads in that hour in their lesson? You know, we, it, the thing is, is that if we just go, if some schools just go back to the teaching that they were doing before, which is allowing children to lead their own learning, um, or children to, to mess about in lessons and to have lots of low-level disruption and so on. If that sort of thing continues to happen, then we are not going to catch them up. And that's what's important, is when we get back, what kind of teaching are we delivering with? Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to today's Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. Please don't forget to like, comment, and most importantly, subscribe. And you can catch me live on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 till 10. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.